Welcome to Out on a Limb, where traditional finance and the new digital economy converge with a sense of history. My name is Tim Enneking, and this is episode 38. Today is May 30th, 2023, and it is about four o'clock on the west coast of the United States. Four relatively quick topics today. The world is still recovering from a, a supposed debt ceiling uh, deal, and we'll get to that in a second. Uh, the first topic, though, is uh, revised data. As you recall, a couple of weeks ago, explained how sometimes uh, data is significantly revised. And when I mean data, I mean the, the unemployment data or GDP data or inflation data. Uh, it, there's an initial reading that comes out generally within a week or two of the end of the relevant period, whether that be a, a month, a quarter, or uh, or a year, and then there's a revision that is that is often put out, and I guess the revisions are always put out. Sometimes they change the number, sometimes they don't, but there are updated statistics that either reinforce what came out next or a slight variation of it. Uh, now, uh, by pleasant coincidence, this is just recently I mentioned this as a <clears throat> as a supplemental topic, really from current events. The Q1 2023 GDP revision came out, and the GDP for Q1 of this year was set at 1.1%. And if that's an annualized figure, and 1.1% is, is fairly weak, but it was actually positive news from an inflation standpoint. Unfortunately, again, from an inflation standpoint, the GDP number was just revised upward to one3 not a huge increase, 20 basis points, but that was about a 20% increase in growth. And at the margins, it could be something that would affect the uh, OE, the FOMC decision-making come June when there is the next meeting of the Federal of the, the Fed Open Market Committee to determine whether or not to raise interest rates or at some point in time in the future to lower them. So in any event, the uh, number was still below expectations, but now it was just barely below. So it's always good to keep in mind initial stats come out, but they may not be or they're not the final word on the matter. And the final word actually may be quite different. Uh, the second topic is the Consumer Expenditure Index, the PCE, which was up 4.4%. This was announced last Friday. And the core PCE was up 4.7%, which is unfortunate. Usually the core is lower than the overall PCE. The core excludes the highly volatile energy and food sectors. Uh, in March, the core was up 4.6%. So actually there was a slight increase in core uh, PCE in April. Uh, on the upside, it's well below 5 or 30 basis points below 5 but at this point in time, the Fed would like to see that number uh, approaching four and maybe even descending below four. At that point, you're more than halfway toward the 2% target. And that is, uh, and that would be just a huge victory. We're just not there yet. Inflation is very, very stubborn. So uh, the month on month PCE in April was up 0.4%. Annualized, that's 4.8. You know, with some rounding, you get to 47 and it was 0.3% in March, which would have been much, much nicer because that would have given you a 3.6% rate. Of probably bigger concern to the FOMC and more fatal to my prediction of, uh, 
or more damaging, I should say, to my prediction of no more increases or decreases between now and the end of the year, was consumer spending. Uh, consumer spending was up 0.8% in April, which you know, obviously it's 7.2% annualized. That is a big uh, a, a big number. I Sorry, it wasn't 7.2% annualized, 7.2% year over year. A much bigger number than people were hoping for. Uh, there may be some seasonal factors to that. There may be some recovery from uh, the bank, the uh, mini bank crisis that took place in March. But that number is a probably greater concern than the revised GDP number. Uh, in any event, uh, the there is a small, it's between 25 and 30 percent last I saw, uh, probability being priced into bonds for the uh, FOMC to increase interest rates in June. But I honestly, uh, honestly don't see that happening. Uh, the third topic, and by the way, all four topics today are fiat because there's really a not, not a lot happening in the crypto world right now. The third topic is related to a prediction I made. One is that the that Twitter under Elon Musk would lose at least half its value, and the second one was that he would sell it. Uh, well, the, the sale has not taken place, but my God, is the value being crushed. Fidelity Investments today announced their fourth reduction in the price of Twitter at $8.8 billion. It's less than a third. Uh, it's actually, I think, I think it's less than a fourth. Uh, the, art, the news article said less than a third, but he paid over 44. So it's less than a fourth of what Musk paid. Now, that is interesting because, first of all, it makes it much more likely that someone will purchase it. And secondly, it got me really to thinking... <laughs> About how, pardon me, about how Musk behaved since, or what the impact of Musk's behavior was prior to him buying Twitter compared to afterwards. And by any measure I can come up with, he was actually much better, much better off when he was outside because then he could post anything he wanted on his on his tweets. He might get you know suspended for a while, or might get yelled at, or might incur a reaction but it wouldn't jeopardize the entire platform. Now, whenever he does something and says the private owner of Twitter, and that it, it has much broader implications, uh, provides uh, calls out a much bigger broadcast. And considering one of the biggest advertisers of, of Twitter is Disney, and that uh, Musk hosted Ron DeSantis for his announcement of his uh, presidential nomination, uh, that's not something that's going to endear Disney to Twitter at all. And that's ignoring the fact that from a technical standpoint, the announcement was an absolute disaster, which, of course, makes makes Musk, after cutting 75% of the staff of Twitter, including a lot of technical staff, look really silly for doing that. And that is also probably an explanation or one of the explanations for the timing of Fidelity's fourth cut in valuation. I mean, after all, the company has $13 billion worth of debt. So think about that for a second. It's worth 8.8 .8 in Fidelity's estimation. It has $13 billion worth of debt. That means that it's, you know, the, maybe the total is 22, which interestingly is one half and it's exactly what the, the price that I thought it was going to be worth. But you take, you have to take the debt out, right, to get the enterprise value. So you have something that is really not worth very much. And this is when 
the estimates of advertising revenue have dropped more than 50%. No one really knows, of course, because it's not a private company. But the best estimates are that there's been at least a 50% drop in, in revenue. Of course, he's burned costs because he's cut 75% of staff and hasn't been paying his bills, as all the lawsuits show. But it, it still shows that the company is in a, in a much more uh, fragile position um, than it was before. That being said, Trump is, or Trump, Musk is actually $48 billion richer because of what the value of Tesla has done, recovering uh, much of the losses from last year. The fourth and last topic is the debt ceiling timeline. I've actually had a lot of people ask questions about this. The, you know, when, what does it take to get the, to get the debt ceiling raised? Well, first it takes agreement on the part of the, of enough of the House to, uh, to get a bill passed. And then presumably if it vaguely resembles what McCarthy and Biden agreed to, the Senate will pass it and Biden will sign it. That all does take time. Interestingly, though, there's a, there's a tradition in the, in the House that I was not aware of. And that is that for such funding bills like this, in this case, raising the debt ceiling, obviously, the tradition is that the majority of the party in control of the House has to vote for it. So in this case, the tradition states that if a majority of the, of the Republicans do not vote for it, even if there were enough Democrats to make up for the gap, uh, the Republicans would ultimately not vote for it. I don't know how that will play out here, and it's a tradition is just that. It's not a law, but the, it will be very difficult for McCarthy, let's say, if a minority of Republicans vote for the debt ceiling, and the vast majority of Democrats do. Keep in mind, it's 222 Republicans and 213 Democrats. So you only need five Republicans and to join all the Democrats to pass the bill. And so that has to happen. Uh, usually the way the process goes is a bill passed in the House, there's a bill passed in the Senate, and there are some differences. So there's a reconciliation committee and they meet, and then the bills go back to the House and Senate where they voted on again, hopefully in identical format. We don't have time for all of that here because, as Janet Yellen has announced, we only have until June 5th before the U.S. literally runs out of money, and that's next Monday. So if you look at how much time is left, really the, the House has to vote on the bill by tomorrow. Today, the Rules Committee uh, has vote or will vote uh, almost certainly now there is a fence sitter. The Rules Committee has to vote for the rules that will be used to pass this particular piece of legislation in the House. Uh, the Rules Committee had a, has to vote by two-thirds. There was a fence sitter on the Republican side. But literally about an hour ago, he announced that he would support the bill. So the bill will go to the full House and be voted on. It really has to be voted on tomorrow for the Senate to have time to vote on it on Thursday and then it goes to the president for signature on Friday, and Monday the United States does not run out of does not run out of money. There's obviously a weekend built in there, and there's a little bit of extra time, and hopefully the game of chicken will not go to the last minute. I was actually surprised that McCarthy and and uh, Biden were able to agree as far in advance of the deadline as they did. Unfortunately, that gives more time for other people, generally the extreme left on the Democratic side, the extreme right on the Republican side to make a lot of noise. But ultimately, I've always been completely convinced this will pass and, and uh, made that prediction last week. I see nothing to, to change that. The fascinating thing will be, though, 
the implications on McCarthy's leadership of the of the debt bill being passed, because what you're going to find is that McCarthy agreed that any single member of the House can call for effectively a no no confidence vote in his leadership. And already, and this is exactly as I, I, I predicted last week, already some uh, extreme right members of the Republican Party are saying they want to uh, challenge McCarthy's position as Speaker of the House. Very difficult to to reach a compromise when part of your caucus, the Republicans in this case, if you only have a four and a half point, you know, four and a half vote lead and you can't have half a vote, so five votes uh, defect from the Republicans and boom, you've lost your, you've lost your majority. And when there are more than five uh, far right members of the Republican caucus, it puts McCarthy in a very, very dangerous position because from one perspective, his entire leadership role is up to a vote every time anything comes to the floor, particularly as here there's a significant compromise. So the timeline should be out of committee today, full house tomorrow, Wednesday, uh, Senate on Thursday, and that would imply that the Senate would work fairly quickly, uh, to Biden on Friday. And then you have, the, the, and the crisis isn't over then because there are these extraordinary measures that, that Janet Yellen has been using, essentially is the government borrowing from itself, borrowing from different pots of money that are available in the federal government. So the estimate is that before June 14th, the U.S. will have to issue $1 trillion worth of debt. And even in the United States, with the size of its economy, a trillion dollars is a lot of money. That is going to suck up a lot of, of equity out of uh, markets and a lot of cash out of, out of banks and other places. And the, there are real concerns that the um, interest rate is going to have to be higher, at least temporarily, to pull all that money out. And that could also have a negative effect on inflation. Uh, on the other hand, because it pulls a lot of cash out of the system, it could actually have a re- it could temporarily reduce uh, the price pressure uh, and 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 cause an effect that would actually be slightly deflationary. The fact of the matter is nobody really knows because we haven't gone through this ridiculous exercise enough to really have uh, really have established principles. But the general uncertainty is probably. Disinflationary because people are less hesitant, less um, willing to to spend or to make large commitments, given all the uncertainty. Even if you, like me, were certain that ultimately something would be passed, uh, that's not a hundred percent certainty, and there's still damage being done, uh, even with the uh, credit, uh, the debt ceiling being raised. And again, it was only raised for two years, so yay, we get to we get to do this again right after the 2024 elections. And with that, I wish you a good week, and I hope, uh, fingers crossed, for the debt ceiling to actually be passed, I guess would be the best thing to say. Everyone take care.